that's the end of the first interview session, which was Saturday, October 29th. The next interview session, which will start on this same track, will be Sunday, October 30th. Sunday, what's the date? 30th, Halloween. October 30th, 1977, by Elaine King. I put her in now. And the well-known interviewer, Mr. McQuaid, <laughs> of the Oral History Project of oh, yeah. International Museum of Photography at George Eastman House. Rolls right off the tongue, doesn't 900 it? East Avenue, Rochester. When I fill out applications and they say, where do you work? And they have a space about... Yeah. <laughs> and, they, uh, no. and if I just put IMPGH, they say, what's that? Anyway, this kind of a image. See, I had a very particular kind of name. That was a very particular, well-known... Uh, is this a memento moron? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And this is the photographic version what used to be called Memento Mori. Mm -hmm. And this is why I object, well, a lot of things I object to. <laughs> of which this is... But historically, the idea that both photographers and paint historians don't connect the two really irritates me. Mm -hmm. You know, as in making them as if they were separate. Was it, uh, who was it we were talking to the other day about the, the new New Yorker? Uh, Article on Eggleston's show and oh, was right. and Janet was McCall Janet Malcolm's article and was saying in which she was saying that the new color photography like Eggleston comes out of photorealist painting. I thought that oh, was so assy, which reminds me <laughs> yeah, that was really what we should do today. I want to show you the photographs, the color photographs, which I have to send off to an exhibit I've been holding up. Oh, okay, it yeah. Has to go go somewhere and. Uh, I mean, would put the lie to that totally. I mean, I have a photograph of neon signs in the window that looks almost exactly like a photo we were painting. It was on the cover of either our form or our news. The line was done some 25 years earlier. <laughs> Details. <laughs> well, you know, I think also when you go to the Art Institute, you've got to look at Arthur's Die transfers from the 50s. That yeah, that's, well, that's, that's what, what I... these are. This yeah, is what this show is about. Where is the show going to be? In, uh, in Oregon. Is this a Bernie Freemaster? Yeah. Thank you. Well, now this is very unusual. These the Ache. Uh, the nude, yeah. I'd be very curious to know what is in fact. How does he document that that was Ache? I don't, well, I don't know. The it might have well, of course, you know, there was that there's an incident where Ache went with this friend of his and photographed prostitutes for him. Yeah. And possibly that's a negative from that. Could uh, be. That girl. Yeah. Speaking of Ache, Mickey has all these odd things that he claims are Aches that he's gotten from Ed Kaufman. Really? I really suggested that he make 
photostats of them or good Xeroxes of them and ship out those things to the Museum of Modern Art and, and really get some kind of an opinion. I really couldn't believe some of the pictures. Even though they are albumin prints and they have sort of a feeling that they could be. I a lot more people with cameras than Anche. That's right. Like that's that. right. And it just I just said to Mickey, I really That's you know, like the the accreditation of those aerial photographs to stipe him. Yeah, I saw I saw those. I, I don't think anybody can rightfully claim, you know, that they've documented those are Steichens. Because Steichen was head of the union. He could have picked up all kinds of stuff. But he liked, you know. Yeah, it's like Brady having done all the Civil War pictures. Right, and right. The whole yeah. thing has been turned around finally. There's a guy at the door. Brigier? Bougier is the way I would say. You know what, I, that's what I always said until I got, uh, ran across Jim Enyard a while ago, you know, I was yeah, doing a book on him. And Jim Enyard says, no, he actually pronounced it Bruguer. Bruguer? <laughs> yes. He, it was not a touch, which was weird to me. It sounded crazy, but that's how, you know, his mistress says it, that's how apparently he said it, and that's how all his friends termed it. So. Well, that's interesting. Bruguer. I don't know. Yeah. I remember Edith Ellison's first show. I liked this work very much. Which was, well, what's not to like? I mean, it was a. Super really, but I've never seen it in the flesh. Uh, or in the, journalistic you know. photography. Say, can you tell me anything about Luke Swank? Luke oh, Swank. The name that comes out of the deep is a, I was looking through Fortune magazine once for something else and ran across a couple. Well, I thought very handsome, kind of romantic, industrial things by mm -hmm. Luke Swank. Mm -hmm. And then since then, that was a couple of years ago, his name has popped up with his Levy stuff. And there was a U.S. camera article I discovered in the yeah. early volumes on him by Newhall. And I just wondered, did you ever meet him? No. Just the name that you heard? Yeah, I knew of him for a long time. He was very well known. Did a lot of commercial jobs yeah, with different types? Yeah, You know, the way... Uh, was he? Do you know where he was based, or? I was trying to think somewhere like Pittsburgh or That's what Philadelphia. Or one Pittsburgh of is what I've heard, things. and that makes sense. Hmm. Does Eastman House have his work? Nothing. Oh, I had a laugh today. I, there was a book I noticed for sale, newly published of Count von Bloden. Who? Count von Bloden. Hmm. Well, along the lines that we were talking about yesterday about homosexuals and, oh, yeah. and so on, he was probably the most open and did pictures somewhere around the turn of the century in Sicily of all these cute little boys, mm -hmm. you know, nubescent little boys with flowers and garlands in their hair that were obviously to me homosexual uh, lover admiration or something produced mm -hmm. images and there's a full overpriced obviously 48 pictures for 1995 <laughs> um, but I was amazed in one sense to see them and not amazed at all because I think I told my class that somebody in the new environment of sexuality somebody would probably do a book soon on homosexual pictures mm -hmm. gay pictures well this is one aspect. Yeah. It's just like the Baron de Meyer surfacing, you know. 
the yeah, Paul Outer Bridge is now undergoing a renaissance. It's really kind of kinky, fetish. <laughs> yeah, well, wow, we had a great deal to do with that. Uh, the numbers that Eastman uses and uh, some other people, or maybe they're not anymore, but the numbers that were used to identify the Outer Bridge pictures, Outer Bridge has been one of my favorites for a long time. Hmm. And I got J.D. interested in Outer Bridge. And if he hadn't been so slow, he could have made himself a fortune. Because in the interim time, about six months between when he started contacting Mrs. Outerbridge and uh, doing the thing, and he actually went there with Denise and put the numbers on and cataloged her, all the stuff. Hmm. And, uh, but then there was this auction, you see, that was San Francisco Station, TV, public radio, or something like that. And the damn thing sold for, you know, enormous sum of money, and thus alerted the kind of, uh, you know, uh, gallery. G. Ray Hawkins and all yeah. those people, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's where. That's where I just saw some. Was it G. Ray Hawkins gallery? Yeah. Got a whole bunch. Did you see Sloan alerted George Eastman House to these things, and made a complete set and dealt with this crazy mad woman, his widow, who thought. He and Denise were trying to steal pictures, and they were just working their ass off, not yeah. stealing anything. Mm. Well, everybody's. That was his thesis mm. for my class, mm. and I am delighted, incidentally. One of my students, Doug Severson, um, did a thing for my class, the history class in Poland, on the stereoscope in Holmes. Hmm. And a reduced version of it is being, has been accepted by the History of Photography magazine hmm. for publication, hmm. which will undoubtedly be the first student acceptance in that, what I consider, you know, a very prestigious magazine. It tends to be a bit boring, but it is very scholarly. Well, well, that's scholarly right. it's for what it, I yeah. mean, it is what it is, and that's okay. No, we needed it, but yeah, it's a... I, I fall asleep reading it most of the time. Well, I didn't subscribe because it's too, it's too expensive. But what is uh, it a year now? $20 a year 20, or something for four issues. It's pretty, pretty heavy. Steam. Yeah. This is interesting. This is in Maholi's book in another illustration. What is that, the pigeons? Or no? Yeah, that's, that's the. Geez. How fascinating. Mm. Well, maybe we can. Uh, Leave those things for you, and uh, okay, that's <laughs> sweet. Thing. Didn't mean to distract Arthur. Oh, you always distract me. And take you back to those days of yesteryears. They used to say on the radio. Sociology. Yeah, major. tell me where. Okay, bring me up the date. In sociology in 1935. We have you. Uh, we have got you. Uh, you got a job. You were cutting a lot of cloth. That's right. You restored your financial situation, and you went back to Wayne. Um, where you met the people in the uh, Detroit Board of Education yeah. and the physical education people who are interested in dance. Now, I'm trying to... Re can I interrupt for half? Sure. Can I move this there and I can put my coffee cup? Just shove it that way. Yeah, just more. It's getting so confused. I don't know what it is. What's the logic, right? Yeah. Well, it was logical. So he moved it without my permission yesterday. You mean Adam? Or... Just, oh, well, I want to put the tape recorder right here. See, oh. the way I keep things 
I'm glad you, not me, brought the charade. See, here's a guy who's undoubtedly going to have a book done on Ralph Steiner. Mm. And he had some connection with the Clarence Light thing. Yeah, he was a student there. Yeah. Here's Luke Swain. Probably right? Yeah. Maurice French. Well, Luke Swank, I'd like to find out more about just because mm -hmm. I was interested in well, that the work he saw. Yeah, I should go down to Pittsburgh and see if he's got any relatives. And uh, he probably had a he probably had a commercial, probably had a business. Uh, oh, I'm quite sure of it. Establishment at some point. Yeah, I'm quite sure. Of it. All right. Prices are pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, I noticed. Them. Ache prints by Bernice are two fifty. I bought them from Bernice for ten dollars a piece. Nobody wanted them. That's what's so interesting. See, all this stuff's been available all the time. Now, what is the reason for the sudden upsurge? That's a real intriguing question to me. Yeah, it's it's real hard to say. It's just I think it's partly the impasse in the other arts in the market. For one, it's a market phenomenon, really. Oh, absolutely. All those people are in there to make money. You know, they are, there's a whole network you know, of distribution that has been formed to keep the prices up, like Harry Lund, you know, and Alice Adams, and, and the connection, I forget where his other, where what the New York connection Scott Elliott, is. Helios. Marlboro. Lund, Lund is really an interesting figure. Well, I don't know. Uh, this, but, uh, but it's Marlboro. What is Helios. this New York connection? Helios. Helios. Is what? Say, do you know this? Yes. Who is who? Helios is a real connector with Lund. Well, Lund and Marlboro, though, have collaborated on a, a number of the things like Brandt yeah. and Bernice yeah. and so on. Well, Lund is a very interesting character because the rumor is that he was, uh, you know, sort of a CIA figure in Europe because he was a, you know, he worked for, uh, he worked for the National Union of Students or something like that, which was later, you know, in the 50s, which was later uncovered as the CIA front, and then he worked as a cultural affairs attaché, which is a notorious cover in Europe, you know, and became a print dealer kind of out of that, but also maybe did a lot of other things. So he's a sort of a spooky character in my book. He looks it, too. This is... Yeah, a lot of people say it's rather strange. I was surprised when I visited the gallery at Peace Street in Washington. What were you surprised at? How tiny it is, and how nothing it is, and yet how powerful it is. Oh yeah, it's just... I mean, that's where I was saying it. I was taken aback. It's the iceberg phenomenon, yeah. Yeah, well, the space doesn't need to be huge. No, that's, that's the thing I was trying to teach Mickey, that same principle, that if, you know, he would listen to me, and as Doug Munson said, if Mickey would go to Tahiti for six months and give me a budget and free reign, he might have been able to do something. But with him around and me around, I just... Hey, I'll look at that sometime. Well, I'll just leave it to you all week. Thank you. Um, Back to 1935? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, a question I wanted to recap a little bit. Um, you... We're out of work in 32. You got the job in the clothing factory in 33 sometime. Yeah. 
I just talked to my friend Jules, incidentally. Oh, really? That's why he called. And uh, he'd be happy to see you sometime, talk about it. He did get an ad with Avis camera, and it was either 27 or 28. And we did use that camera to make photographs in high school. Hmm. So he confirmed that recollection? Yeah. Yeah, he's in Detroit. I should go oh, speak sure. to him. Oh, sure. Jules is a nice guy. Because I'll be in Detroit the, right around New Year's and first part of January. Yeah, you'd like him. His wife is... Uh, Vice President of uh, that Ford Design Group. They're a cousin of uh, the Ford family. I forget the name. A design group? Even within the Ford Motor Company? No, no. It's outside, but they're related to the Ford Company. They do a lot of work for hmm. you know, industry. She's nice. She used to teach arts and crafts years ago. Super. They're super people. Yeah, I'll have to get the information from you and look them up when I go. Write them a letter before I go. They live near Birmingham, you know. Oh, that would be so very, it's real simple. Here. Yeah. Detroit's not that big, real anyway. Well, it is if you're going oh. from Gratiot to yeah, Birmingham. I mean, Listen, I think it's huge. David's well, relatives. It's not that. Anyway. Yeah, uh, well, anyway, what what um, what I wanted to recall, I think we said yesterday, was it in the fall of '34 that you went back? Yeah. You went to Wayne, or was it '35? No. It would have been. It was. It must have been '34. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's and what I thought. Get a transcript, as far as I'm concerned, you would get that. Yeah. In fact, actually, since you mentioned that, well, I, I took the liberty of uh, doing just that, of Fine. composing a letter, and to to both Michigan and Wayne, you know, just this kind of a yeah, well, this kind of a thing. Disaster. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just. And the Wayne is not a disaster. That's the. Uh, and while you're at it, why don't you get the Callahan's <laughs> Just uh, anywhere down there over your name. You have a uh, beginning in 1935. I think it's 34. Oh, well, I don't, think, I don't think they'll... Just to give them some idea where they're looking is all. You know, I mean, I don't know. They, they conceivably might need your social security number or something to find it, but I don't think they we will. They have any. From that period. Oh, that's right. Huh? <laughs> See how things have changed, man. That period of time, they won't really matter. Incidentally, you notice my, we didn't bring it up, but my full name is Arthur Sidney Siegel. Ah, uh, And I your... sort of uh, finally began dropping that name. Uh, off and on, <clears throat> finally dropped it, maybe. In the 40s, the S. Yeah, I always resented the initials. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> well, the, you know, I can think that would in be my stationery. He went through things like I think it began with Arthur Seville, uh, photography, and then Arthur Seville, modern photography, and then Arthur Seville, contemporary photography, and then I think it was just dropped. Arthur Siegel photography. Yeah, right. Um, but those words, you see, kept changing. The meaning of them kept changing in my day. And it's kind of interesting. It's the shifting words that were applied to photography. Um, yeah, the, there's a, it's true. The word pictorial keeps changing its meaning through that's time. That's right. And when you look at... If you capitalize it, it means something different than it. And, then you right. get it and when you look at the word modern, for instance, it was used as a cover of a yearbook for a while, modern photography, which was mainly pictorial photography. You know, and 
That's where people like Susan Sontag get it all mixed up. They really don't know the subtleties of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, or people writing on Ansel Adams, like William B. Cox. And she really doesn't understand Ansel at all, or where he came from. There are a lot of things that go on all at once, and it's, right. it's not that simple to keep them straight, you see. If you're an outsider, it all looks the same to you. Like this whole new romanticism that is growing. You know, Linda Connor, for instance, mm -hmm. obviously is using a saw Smith saw focus lens or something that she must have found. Yeah, it's an it's old lens. It's a grandfather's, isn't it? Something like that. It's what a, is it? It's a, I don't know, it's, but it's an older lens. It yeah. looks like a Smith Victor saw focus lens to me, of which, you could, of which I own one, potchkate around a little bit, but hated losing the sharpness, you see. Mm -hmm. Today that's all in again, you know, and I, I dislike Bob Fichter's photography. I think it's, you know, lousy jokes. He may be a great teacher. He's a terrible photographer. Might even be a good humorist, but he may, no, he isn't a good humorist. It's corny as hell, yeah. to me, mm -hmm. and it's not very, uh, I, and not that it matters, you see. I think Jerry Ilsman's sense of humor is rather infantile. You know, it's not, they're not very, uh, it's not very real witty. Mm -hmm. It's sort of corny. Like, it's forced. I mean, I think Versailles evokes more humor. Well, I'm talking about their words, not their pictures. Oh. No. Anyway, uh, there is this, there are several movements going on. One is like, you know, the Fichter kind of mixing up the media. Mm -hmm. And the best of those, you see, is Bob Heineken, who really still believes a frustrated printmaker. He mm -hmm. teaches printmaking, and he really should be making it in the printmaking area of today's art. Yeah. He isn't. He doesn't. Yeah. And Bob is really smart, you know, knows a great deal, but as a, a uh, you know, in the art world, he's zilch. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've heard remarks from some sort of West Coast people who didn't uh, particularly care for his work who said, said uh, well, he was a great fighter pilot. <laughs> Fairly terse uh, evaluation of him as an artist. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to drag the conversation back a bit to, uh, to Wayne. And for, okay. simply, first question is, how long were you at Wayne? I and did you earn graduated, a degree? yeah, from Wayne, yeah. Oh, 1937. I got two things. One, I got a Bachelor of Science in Education because I switched. And I got a, I actually got a teacher's certificate from Wayne University. I qualified, took all the courses. I taught my, I took, <clears throat> I had to do lesson. Well, part of that was because I worked at the Visual Education Department and theoretically I had to have a teacher's certificate. So, to work there, you mean? Yeah. Like if you were going to keep stay on there after you there, Yeah, that started fairly early. I'd forgotten when I started taking these education courses. You needed 12 hours of education, a history of education, and a psychology of education, and uh, did you have to do student teaching? Yeah. You had to do student teaching, which I did. And what I did was the first week I taught my sister, who was then 12 years old, how to make a lesson plan. And I never made another lesson plan all the time I was there. <laughs> and I got my certificate, and I, you know, I'm qualified to teach. <laughs> uh, they, they're so dumb, those things. <laughs> Education courses drive me wild. Well, some of the courses were kind of interesting because I had some interesting people. 
in psychology, for instance. But my main interest in commitment was to sociology. And, uh, you know, I got all A's in the last year, I think, if I remember correctly. It'd be interesting to check. Uh, but then my friend, you see, a teacher, Professor Edward Jandy. Now, how do we spell Jandy? I went to J-A-N-D-Y. Who was very well known. He, I believe he's retired now. Um, he was Armenian. His wife was Southern white. And uh, she, she finally taught in a business community uh, school. And uh, they loved me. We were very happy. I mean, he would come over to my house, which was not too far from his. We were friends, finally. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, uh, after many, many, many discussions, um, Jandy suggested that I not go into sociology, as I told you, because there were so many Jews in the air working in the area. So that seemed reasonable to me. I, uh, I mean, I was frustrated, but uh, mm -hmm. I was doing photography then, and I was already in conflict about what to do. So. I uh, you know, continued my photography. And then, you see, I had started teaching. I taught, and this is most important, maybe one of the most important things. Uh, I taught a course in 1935 at Wayne University in the art education department at the request of Jane Betsy Welling. Now, you, were, you had just started there, or it was the second semester, and you, she asked you to teach this course? Probably this probably after your first semester. Yeah, well, it's later than that. Well, that's right, 34, was it? Yeah, that's right, okay. It may... The second year, like, you, she asked you to do this. We could find out from Wayne, anyway, this was... Well, they published it on Art Alumni History recently. The name of the woman that knows all this stuff is Frida Harrington who was there and was Jane Welling's assistant. And was it and, Wayne now? Or and he's at Wayne, and they published the history, mm -hmm. and it's marked there. Now, I may have that damn date wrong again. I wouldn't. Well, I can, we can dig that out. That's well, but what, I want to add something else. Wayne had already, maybe the 35 pages, there was a man named Hans. And this is where it got a little confused there in the Wayne Bolton. Is that H-A-N-S? H-A-N-C-E. George Hans, I think his name was, who was a a commercial photographer, and he was teaching a course, do you know the, the Ford Motor, I, I think it's still there, administration offices on Woodward and Highland Park? Yeah, yeah, it's the old Model T plant. That's right. Across from Sears there. That's right. Well, he taught a course to just a couple of people, mm -hmm. and I took that course, and he was a specialist, for instance, in photographing 11 by 14, negatives of safes so you could see every screw nut bolt for companies that made safes. Mm -hmm. Catalog type yeah. things. And I learned from him how to use pyro and big negatives and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's aesthetics that had nothing to do with aesthetics. Right, it was just to get the stuff. Pure craft, commercial, superb and, work. And he taught this course just on his own? No. Through I Wayne? think, I think. Kind of like an was, extension. Yes, an extension, of course. Hmm. Because the reason for this was Jane Betsy Welling was interested in photography as an art. I mean, she had known Stieglitz, 
She was a friend of George O'Keefe. They went to Columbia together. And Jane was absolutely involved in all of the arts. Her friends, you see, were people like Harold Rudd, uh, Counts, George Counts. Um, oh, I think she even knew Barnes, the Barnes Foundation. And she was one of the leaders, as were these other people, in the progressive education movement in the United States. Was she from New York City? She was from Scattercoke, New York, which is just outside of uh, Troy, New York, which is outside of Albany, New York. Mm -hmm. And her family has been there since maybe 1776, and one of her ancestors <laughs> fought in the Revolutionary War, and mm -hmm. the whole family was all involved around there. Uh, so Jane came from very fascinating historical stock. Uh, so anyway, she was aware of photography, and it doesn't—it's uh, not a surprise that uh, she got this guy to teach a course. Now the other course I took was from a woman uh, by the name of Chamberlain, C H A M B E R L A I N, I think. I offhand, I can't think of her first name. But this was a course in the Liberal Arts College in physics. She was a physicist. At Wayne. At Wayne, and she taught a course and later wrote a book on the chemistry and physics of photography with a little bit of aesthetics at the end. Mm -hmm. Optics and so on. Yeah. It was primarily a course that was used, uh, you know, to teach people physics and chemistry by using photography mm -hmm. as an example. So there was that aspect of what was teaching. Uh, in addition, I was by that time involved in the camera club, Detroit Camera Club. So I learned quite a bit from men that were much older than me, mm -hmm. uh, involved in the whole pictorial movement. Very little understanding of what the modern movement in art was. Mm -hmm. And Jules reminded me this morning I was friends and frequently taught, but at this point learned a great deal from people like Dr. Marinus, He's, I'm sure they're all dead, uh, who was an endocrinologist. I'm telling you this because it gives you the kind of class status mm -hmm. of who was doing photography. Mm -hmm. See, these are professionals and they're smart, they know something about science, they have money, they have a certain kind of lifestyle with leisure time. And they Pursue it as and a, they pursue it as a hobby. And they were the same whether they were in Chicago or Detroit, you see. Or then or now. <laughs> well, probably the same thing. Anyway, there was Dr. Renus, there was a Dr. Stevens, who was a psychiatrist at the uh, receiving hospital, the public hospital, and also a private psychiatrist. There was Dr. Himmelhoek, who was an obstetrician, very heavy set man, marvelous man. Oh, I remember got all excited about uh, Mortensen and that way of printing, you know, with a little hole in the cardboard. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there were lawyers. There was an advertising man, a guy named Spedden, who... Uh, Spedden, yeah, I've seen him listed as someone who was a student of yours. Yes, it was. I mean, I have a list of names here. Let's just talk about the Detroit yeah, Camera okay. Club here. Now, it was, first of all... See, that extended during... During Wayne, maybe even before, before, 
And after I went to the Chicago, New Balls, yeah, and came back, because I only spent four months at this. Right, this, like, is, this is a, keeps going through. blew up. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about this now. Yeah. To the best of my information, it was called the Detroit Camera Club, or the Miniature Camera Club of Detroit. I have here Exhibit A. No, the Detroit Camera Club. This is, this is, a, this is an old bulletin from... December 1940. It's just a two-page thing. Harvey Crows was the president, um, and that sometime between there and 1942, roughly in 41, sometime, the name there was a change of organization to the Photo Photographic Guild of Detroit. Yes, that's and, right. See, this was the This was the beginning of an organization that dealt with. The kind of new sensibility that was coming in. And I was very instrumental in these clubs in pushing them towards, for instance, I am directly responsible for glossy paper in the United States and the pictorial movement. How's that? Because I did pictures on glossy paper and I was affected by Stieglitz and uh, the whole idea of fine detail, which I've never gotten over. I mean, that's one of my real hang ups about a lot of this crap of gum bichromate. I mean, I think photography has a unique, two unique qualities, fine tone, fine detail. Whenever you give that up, you're giving up the uniqueness. Mm -hmm. To imitate painting is no great source of satisfaction to me. Um, yeah. And so I submitted and was very successful in these clubs in having prints accepted for Points and yeah, your name is in there as some one of the successful exhibitors with Harvey Crows and Izzy Berger, and that one of those paragraphs somewhere. Can I take a spin-off for a second from this? It's related, but it's a little bit of a spin-off. Uh, Arthur, you mentioned that you were impressed with Stieglitz. Can you maybe shed some light on how you became aware? I don't think aware? we should go into that. No. You don't want to. No. I mean, I think we should stick with this camera club and then go back. The Stieglitz connections. Okay. Totally yeah. Different. Okay. But, I mean, I would like to bring yeah, that okay, in. Yeah, well, okay. See here, here's Joe Monroe. Right. I taught Joe photography. He is Prince standing advanced. He's the head of it. Berger had a great deal to do with influencing him. <laughs> There's Arthur Siegel with 30 points. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of a joke. Here's that Dr. Marinus I was talking about. Oh, let me see. Uh, uh. And Norma Whalen was a very aggressive gal who, uh, you know, began to make pictures, but these were all, uh, they were very much influenced, torn. See, like you have Adolf Fassbender, he was the guy in the Victorian right. movement. He was the one that was most responsible for manipulating the print in some way. Paper negatives, Paper negatives. Et And then in Chicago, there was Dr. Max Thorak, who came and gave a lecture at, uh, to a lot of the, all the camera clubs, I guess, in the base in the auditorium of, if I remember correctly, it was either the gas company's auditorium or the or Detroit or, Edison. Yeah, maybe. or Edison. And I took off after publicly after Max Thorak and just the kind of thing I was talking about. I was a young punk, mm -hmm. and he was a great authority, he's a world famous surgeon. He'd written a book, mm -hmm. and he was an internationally known pictorialist. And I said, you know, in effect, that this is all a bunch of crap. Mm -hmm. Because if I remember correctly, he used to use black shoe polish, you know, to work on the back of his prints, and then he printed these things. And I was against all this stuff. 
and use glossy paper so any defects would show up. Whereas all those people were using, you know, rough textures. textures and talking, you see, in terms of the painter's textures. And I got that very clear in my head very quickly, you see. You were sort of more or less of what we could call in retrospect a purist in your, yes. in your approach. Yes, and that had come from primarily from Stieglitz. Also from the other people, uh, I mean just my own work. For instance, I don't know if I mentioned that during these 30s, did I mention Lionel Berryhill? No, I have, a, I have this list of names here. He's, he's another name on that. Well, he was being a very, student of yours. He, no, 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 no. Oh, no, I was a student of his. Hmm. In the sense that Lionel Berryhill was a Swedish man that came to Detroit, I don't know, maybe in the early 30s. And he was a, a user of, I can't remember, I think it was a Leica. It may have been a contact. But a very small camera. But the relatively. small cameras and no compromise. He didn't take pictures with bigger cameras. And he was the first professional photographer I knew that dared to do a job with a miniature camera. And I remember I used to go out and help him once, once in a while. And he did industrial pictures, that is, pictures in factories where he would, and they were grainy as hell by today's standards. But I remember we did such things where we took hundreds of photographs at a General Motors outing and we photographed everybody that played off the tee. And then they gave that, you know, we made five by seven pictures and everybody got a sort of a memento of that occasion. Well, that was kind of interesting to me. This was very early. This must have been, I don't know, somewhere around 34. Uh, then there was another guy that influenced me, a commercial photographer. I actually learned from, from uh, Lionel Berryhill, I don't know what happened. Then there was a guy that worked for the Detroit Camera Club, Eddie Worth, I was thinking the other day. But for the camera shop? For the camera shop, by the name of Jack Goodman, who actually was one of the first guys that monkeyed around and finally got some decent... Uh, not grainless, but small grain, big enlargements. I mean, he made the large, he was proving that you couldn't make big prints, and you made 30 by 40 prints from Lycan negatives. And he was very interesting, and I used to go down and watch him. He did the processing at the Detroit Camera Club. They had their processing. I mean, this is also changed again. You see, this mm -hmm. is all enormous industrial enterprises. At that point, Jack Goodman was running the processing. You know, in the camera shop. In the camera shop, for the camera shop. Now, what and taking his own pictures, you know, and having time enough to spend with a young guy, you know, talking, we were friends. Uh, so there was that influence. Um, on the other hand, there was a guy, an industrial photographer that just used 8x10, uh, mainly used 8x10, Ed Schaefer, terrific industrial photographer that did pictures for John Lawrence Chrysler and so on. Terrific. I mean, nobody made better pictures ever before or since. Uh, you know, he was able to photograph very complicated things like big lines of cars being manufactured, all fully graded. None of this crap that you see. You know, with uh, they were fully. They were as as classic as the guy that photographed the uh, the uh, safe doors or the interior of the size. Now what about um, 
we've mentioned Joe Monroe, but I what what more uh, could you tell me? He's he was now was he a couple years younger than you? Yeah. And what was he doing at the time? Was he working Joe at the time? Joe was working. No, 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 no. I taught Joe Monroe photography. Joe and Mark Christensen, if I remember, both were working for one of the utilities or something like that. Detroit Edison, I think, is what I've heard. In well, relation to Mark Christensen. I can't remember. Um, Joe began doing photography. Joe didn't go to college. He married very young, marvelous young lady. They had lots of kids, and Joe had other affairs. He was a very active sexual young man, <laughs> and very directed. You know, he finally decided he wanted to be a photographer. He quit his job. Uh, I had quite a bit of work. During the time I was going to Wayne, I had a friend named Edward Anthony, who won, I think, maybe twice the National Soap Sculpture Competition that Ivory Soap had. <laughs> he was a fantastic, he was part of this group around Jane Welling. Uh, and don't misunderstand me, Welling, the painting was mainly over in the liberal arts. Uh, I can't remember. Verge. There was a man there, and his wife was the woman that taught dance at Wisconsin. He taught painting in the liberal arts. James, uh, the art education was mainly craft oriented. You know, all the gimmicks and gadgets that yeah. elementary and high school teachers learn. Uh, in spite of that, many of the people went on to become artists directly due to the inspiration, and certainly the produced a hell of a bunch of good teachers, art teachers. So Edward An Ed Anthony and I became very good friends, and I used to photograph his soap sculpture, which are one bar of soap, you know. And we did a book on soap sculpture. <laughs> that is, we, I took all the pictures, we laid it out, took it to New York, to the National Soap Sculpture, whatever they're called, <laughs> and out of that I got the commission to photograph the uh, National Soap Sculpture publicity photographs, which consisted of me going to New York for several years, even when I was going to school, and photographing, oh, I don't know, maybe a hundred pieces of soap sculpture and turning them into absolutely magnificent without scale sculpture. Mm -hmm. And finding that I couldn't do it during the daytime because the Elevator went up and down, and the building shook. And I was using these are four by five negatives, and uh, and a long balance draw to get that big oh place fired. I couldn't do it, so I'd, I'd eat dinner and then start working about eleven o'clock. And the guy, I can't remember who the uh, agency was. He was a very nice guy. He took a liking to me. I showed him the book and everything. He took me to Lou Charles, which was his account down the street, and I went all through the wine cellars and the meat cellars. It was very exciting for me. Uh, and I kept that. But then, you see, I would get the negatives developed in New York, in a commercial lab, and I'm always worried about them ruining it, because it took me an hour, maybe, to light each one of these damn things. And I'd mm -hmm. stay there several days working. It was very tough. Which year is this in? Well, these are the years, probably somewhere 35 to. While you're still. Maybe 34 to 35. I can't quite remember, yeah.
Do any of these pictures exist? They're also gone by the wayside. I don't know. You wouldn't. They they might have them. You wouldn't have them. Yes, I had them. I kept them because I wouldn't trust them. These were really delicate things. They might have a file print of this. Yes. If they I, I might even have the negatives. I don't know. Hmm. But I have a lot of negatives that should be printed. I just never had the money or the time or anything. But I have a lot of negatives that exist. But I don't know what the hell is in them. Yeah. Uh, which is no different than the Chicago Historical or George Eastman. It's I mean, right. it costs right. money to do that kind of thing. Would this organization in New York have any of that? Would that be able to be? Well, that's what he's saying. They might have files. I'm but sure this was a, this was to the ivory soap people, they must have a set of those things. And this was a very prestigious competition. I don't know if it still goes on, but it was in every high school in the United States. Right. Now, you worked for the agency that ran the, the thing. The public relations people that handled the National Soap Sculpture Contest. National Soap Sculpture Contest. Mm -hmm. Bernays, I think, was the name of the public relations manager, and that's a famous name in public relations, but whether he is the, that Bernays or not, I can't now know. I think that was the name. Just of the take a little detective work, too. Hmm. Well, I think Ivory Soap would. Yeah, know, it wouldn't be too hard to. It shouldn't be too hard to track. In any case, I would then see, for instance, during the daytime in this period, well, let me go back. I would make all these negatives, but then I had to produce an enormous, for me, number of not crappy prints, right? Like but beautiful prints. So um, I remember, you know, I would have people like Mark Christensen and Joe uh, gave them a job. Work for you printing this yeah. one job. It's well, job. they would help me. I, I've always printed my own everything. Nobody's ever printed anything something. You know, time, life, that kind of stuff. And that was a major disaster in my life. I pick, see, the reason I am so hard to track is because I'm all over the place. I know. <laughs> yeah. Seemed like the Wisconsin historical people have all my negatives that I did of Oscar Myers. Total, it's, it's what one would call, if it were Louis Hine, a documentation of the media industry. Yeah, I have 75 halfway decent Xeroxes of the 75 prints that they have as finished prints, which we can look at in a couple days. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Anyway, that's where partly Joe and, uh, and Mark, uh, Mark came in. Joe was very ambitious, as I recall it. You know, he worked for a while, and then he stole some of my accounts. It's an old story. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. I was annoyed at the time, but that didn't affect our friendship, really. Mark was a much more calm and Swedish-type solidity, and he worked for me for quite a while. And uh, Would this have been well, like this National Soap Sculpture thing, we turned out the most beautiful thing. And like I have when you look at my darkroom, uh, I caught on that it was possible to use instrumentation, not for mass production, but for high quality. And I remember I used to use something called the Timolite, which they still manufacture a variation, only it's electronic now, of uh, a photocell that looked down at the light that was projected by the negative, and then, in this case, you adjusted it 
it was just a uh, density kind of a you match the inner and outer yes rays you know on a you know, on a field like the little like the Kodak densitometer now that they still make that's an eye match thing only this is a on the easel thing. yeah but it was connected to a timer see and so oh, I got so I could use that very very well see if you were printing a lot and I always love printing. Uh, well, we would turn out for an, in about, uh, I don't know, I can't quite remember, but we could turn out maybe 150 beautiful prints in a day, maybe more, because they had his hand squeegee. Remember running the damn black enamel squeegee plates uh, through a ringer. You see, that's how we squeegee them. Uh -huh. And they were beautiful. Now here's a question about this. Yeah. Um, when you start going back to Wayne, you're living at home. Yeah. Where I'm are you? Living at home. Where are you doing all this work? At home. In the basement. In the basement home. of. Yeah. Now at this point. Never had a proper dark room until this one. Now, <laughs> was this was this on Tyler Avenue? I've seen Taylor. Some, Taylor. T a y l a r. Okay. I th I thought there was something wrong, but I couldn't figure out what you said yesterday. You said Tyler. That's yes, what. That's how I've seen it. Taylor. This, yeah. Okay. Taylor and Lawton. And this was where your parents had moved after, at some point. Yeah, my parents had moved there. It's very easily dated, I would guess. Or is it? Well, it must have been 1924, because I went to, and I thought of the name of the school, the elementary school, finally. It was Lincoln Elementary School. I don't know if it's even there. But then we moved, and my sister and brother went to Brady Elementary School, and I went to Hutchins. So that must have been 1924. And then they stayed living there. They stayed throughout. there until just very recently, when you know. Mm -hmm. So you had your darkroom set up in the basement, and yeah, it was if someone it was full, of, you know, there was a coal. We're still using coal. It's a coal bin. Coal bin. And the the. Uh, you know, furnace was there, and I fed the the uh, furnace with coal, and on that coal bin wall where the coal was were stacks of telegrams from Time, with Time assignments and other places, but mainly Time. This is all in the 30s. Long, I did work for Time before life, and I worked for magazines, something called Pictures, which you probably can track down. It was a picture magazine done by an advertising agency. And somewhere around the house is something. I got a contacts, contacts three. Mm -hmm. uh, and when that was, I can't rightly figure, but it must have been 34, 35. While you're still so, in school. So you're in school. Before I'm in school. Okay, but here's the thing, Arthur. Can you clarify how the connection with time came about then? It's like, shared merit. I, oh, why? I mean, there's, there's a gap there, I think. We there's don't no have gap. We don't have, I mean, I, it's unclear. Yeah, well, that's all right. There are very few people that were working journalists, and particularly after 1934. Thomas McAvoy was the first, do you know the name? Mm -hmm. Was the first man to use it, take so-called candid pictures in America for a major magazine. And those pictures, if I recall rightly, were of Roosevelt. Yeah, that's the famous pictures. That's the famous pictures of Roosevelt. And after that, you see, people began here and there to um, use the candid approach. And the main block to it were the professionals. 
the resistance to the small the camera. Resistance was mm -hmm. from the so-called news photographers who didn't really relax in a place like Chicago, as I pointed out before, I think, until the mid-50s when they gradually started using a rolly. But in some places, you see, like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and Milwaukee Journal, they began to use smaller cameras. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't because it wasn't possible to take pictures with 35. It was because their heads weren't ready for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you couldn't deliver a set of pictures, for instance, to an advertising agency to 99% of the agencies that were taken. If you just told them that you used a 35 or early, that was not professional. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just wasn't any good a priori. If you didn't tell them. If you didn't tell them, then, then you were all right. And frequently, I used to do it both ways and not tell them. Mm -hmm. But uh, all along, it, it, well, again, it's so changed in the past maybe 10 years. When I first grew my beard, this is typical, was somewhere on Martha's Vineyard. I went there for vacation somewhere in the Sixties, uh, middle sixties, I guess, maybe sixty-five. Before you came back to ID, or just before, or just after? Yeah, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I grew a beard, and I was doing a lot of advertising work. Mm -hmm. So we stayed there for a month and rested, and I didn't shave. Got the beard going pretty well. Yeah. Well, all right, I'm getting a picture. And then I started going around the agencies, and they were all horrified by the way I looked told me to cut the thing off. Mm -hmm. And now, if you don't have a beard, <laughs> they know you're not a really with it. If you don't have a beard or you know, mustache or you know, some kind of a thing, well, that's all changed. And it's all very funny because neither one really has to do with your ability to make photographs. Yeah, really. Now, Maholi, for instance, always insisted on looking like a businessman. He thought the artist should look like a businessman. He didn't like the idea that the artist, you know, was a bohemian. He thought he should be an accepted member of society. Anyway, the story is complicated because there are a lot of things changing, going on. I'm trying to give you a sense of the richness yeah, of what it meant to get interested. Now, I haven't told you about the New York Times wide world, have I? No. No. All right. While I'm going to school, there's a lot going in on. In the summertime, and occasionally in the wintertime, but in the summertime for extended periods, the New York Times Wide World Picture Agency has an office in the Detroit Free Press building right next to their newsroom. So, as a young guy, it's just, I'm nuts about photography. There's never been a day that I haven't read something, looked at photographs, thought about photographs since I was, certainly since I was 12 years old. I mean, it's ruined my life in one sense. It's obsessive. I read everything. I read commercial magazines, you know, everything. Um, as has been pointed out, that's one of the things that makes me a good teacher, you know, because I'm not interested just in the one of pushing a viewpoint on me interested in photography. So, as a young man, very early, maybe 1934, when I have a lot of time, <laughs> uh, when I have some time, 
I go down to this office and ask if I can just hang around. There's a very nice guy there, I remember it. he We became very good friends. His name was Al Hout, who used to be a newspaper photographer in Chicago. H-A-U-T. H-A-U-T, who came to Detroit to head the New York Times Bureau. And what you have to understand is what they did was they had a whole bunch of rubber stamp envelopes in which they inserted one or two pictures and then were mailed. And the mails were very reliable then. So that there, if you mailed something, say, before 8 o'clock, it got to many small towns all over the mm -hmm. you know, Midwest or farther. Mm -hmm. And the usual syndication, if I recall, was somewhere between uh, 48 to maybe 60 papers. It varied because mm -hmm. people would subscribe to it or not. Now, a lot of small town papers only published bi-weekly or weekly, so it really didn't matter. Mm. So gradually, Al Howe, who was a terrific newsman, I mean, he knew what news was, and that's where I learned about news. And this was very early, you know, in the same period. Mm -hmm. Lots of things are going on. Yeah. So I learned how to print, for instance. You know, I don't learn how to work fast. And I also learned that some pictures are meant to die instantly after three days, and other pictures, you know, are meant to be more carefully considered. These new things were only made to make cuts from. And then they were discarded. Mm -hmm.